You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Matthew Quirk back on the show with me today. Uh, he was on a couple of years ago with his uh, thriller debut, and uh, a lot has happened since then. And uh, The Night Agent, uh, if you remember that show, and we'll link it up in the in the uh, show notes of this episode, was one of my absolute favorite books of, of that year. And we've got some new news uh, about The Night Agent, as well as a brand new book that we're here to talk about today, Red Warning. Matthew uh, thank you for taking time to come on the show with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Matthew, I've, I've got a question that I've been asking people lately, and it's been kind of a fun uh, way to to get some conversation started. And um, is there a piece of writing advice that you got from someone, uh, you know, er, early in your career, or just something that that stands out to you? That was either a fantastic piece of writing advice and you look back on it regularly and, and think, oh, I'm so glad someone told me that or and, and maybe there's there's both. But or is there a piece of advice that stands out to you because it was so horrifically wrong that it's just um, funny almost? Oh, OK. Well, let me tackle <laughs> the great advice first. OK. Uh, uh, I guess there's two pieces really that stick out. The first came from um, another podcast, actually, John August's podcast, yeah. um, which is more about screenwriting. But he once talked about how he uh, pictures a scene and he gets away from the computer and just sort of zones out and then pictures it like visually um, and then jots down what he sees. And he'll just sit until the whole, as I understand it until the whole scene unreals in his mind. And that notion uh, that you get away from the computer, really just zone out and let your imagination go, I found to be one of the most helpful pieces of advice I've gotten about writing and also one of the most um, useful and like salutary in that you don't have to be sitting, staring at the cursor, hunched over your keyboard all the time. So I will at every phase of the book, you know, when I'm trying to think of the whole plot, when I'm picturing a scene, I will uh, actually just typically take a walk, although a lot of people get their ideas in the shower or laying down or whatever they're doing, but it'll come to me and then I'll write it down. And that's, I find it's just easier to be creative when you're not staring at the computer kind of glued to the keyboard. Although there are people who can really only think through their fingers. Um, this is just me. And and then I come back and write it down. And it really, it really makes for a nice um, kind of workflow in that I will sort of see, uh, you know, I'm outlining something. Now I'll be at a sort of critical moment in the outline and I'll just go like lay in the backyard if I need to and then let it come to me and then come write it down. Um, so that's the first one, you know, sort of get away from the computer. And then... I won't go into all the depth on this, but 
the idea that you should just write a really super duper rough first draft, which I'm sure you've heard from yeah. umpteen million people. Um, you know, I like to make sure that I outline pretty extensively. So I like to make sure that the story has good bones and then I just write it quickly um, to get away from some of the sort of like perfectionism and stage fright that comes with writing, even when you've been doing it for a long time. So those are my two pieces of good advice. I'm trying to think of bad advice. <laughs> uh, bad advice. No, I can't. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing that might be related. I, my, my first book, The 500, did very well. And there was a lot of pressure on the second book. And um, a friend of mine, who had been sort of a, a mentor to me when I was breaking in, when he heard that I was under a lot of pressure for the second book and i said oh boy you know uh i hope it doesn't i hope it goes well and people hear about this sort of sophomore slump or the pressure to to repeat a big success and you know you can take 10 years to write your first book and then you have a year to write your second and he said he said to me you know it's the third book that's the real (laughs) dastardly the third book's the toughest so i said oh that's great and I wrote the book and I handed it in and then I had to rewrite it completely. And I was a mess after. And I went to him after I finished all the rewrites and everything. And I said, I thought you said the third book was the hardest. He goes, no, no, obviously the second book is the hardest. <laughs> but that's what I tell people so they don't freeze up. So I just sort of like waltzed in front of machine gun fire. But, you know, it was it was good false advice. So maybe that sort of uh, falls under the heading of your question. That's hilarious. Um, I, I heard someone talking about the the dreaded soft, uh, sophomore slump, and, and they were talking about musicians um, because exactly what you said, you can take 10 years to write that first book, but then you have one year to do the second. Well, the same way with, with musicians a lot of times, they've been – uh, woodshedding these songs for years in front of uh, you know clubs and and things like that, and that first album is usually just fire, and then the second one, uh, and and he said the second one is when they're they're picking out drapes for their new mansions and things, and so their 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 hearts not in the same place as the first one was, um, which is hilarious, but um, but yeah, I, I think we all get what you're what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, stay hungry. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, speaking of, of staying hungry, you know, when we talked last, uh, it was 2019 and uh, the night agent had had was just coming out and I'd had the the arc for several months before that. And I just loved that book. And I and, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't say enough great things about it. And then after that book comes out and then you're working on your follow up book. Um, this, this crazy thing happened and a global pandemic hit and, um, you know, everyone's life changed from there. Um, I've been asking a lot of writers because, you know, oddly enough, we spend most of our time at home, uh, alone in an office anyway. And so you, you wouldn't think that, that, you know, everyone being locked down would have that big of an effect on, on writers who already work from home and work secluded anyway. But there's there's a, a weird mental thing that happens when you know the rest of the world is doing that as well. Um, first off, how did you and your family fare uh, during that time? And and how did it, did it affect you creatively? Well, we, we fared pretty well. Uh, in terms of work, 
you know, we authors typically just like hide out at home for a year and then do two or three weeks of promotion. Uh, right. Which for a lot of us, a lot of us are sort of introverted extroverts or whatever you're going to call it. So it's nice because I'll, I'll do that. I'll see everybody I know as I travel on tour and I'm good for a year, you know, and then I can go fill the tank up. up and then you're. Yeah. Ready. Yeah. And um, I my book came out, I don't know three or four days before things really shut down with COVID. And I was at a great conference here called Left Coast Crime. Um, and I, you know, was sort of walking toward the, uh, the hors d'oeuvres that were all laid out on these tables when the county came in and put an order on the hotel no. door that everyone had to go home. Oh, no. Uh, and uh, the buffet suddenly seemed not like, it's like not the best idea. Yeah. Um, so... That tour, it was funny. It was just as things started getting crazy with COVID. So I was a little bit of the guinea pig with the bookstores all going to virtual events. And everybody was a trooper. But there were some, like, funny technical snappies. I was sideways in one interview. <laughs> uh, my voice was sped up like a chipmunk in one reading. Um, so, but it was really, it was really impressive how everyone pivoted. And, you know, in terms of creativity... It didn't it didn't change much, you know, because I just kind of hang out at home and write at home and the. You know, I just had more time and there was no pressure to, like, go out really or anything like that. So um, I found it kind of helpful. Obviously, we got a little stir crazy and cabin feverish but we had a baby that was our pandemic hobby <laughs> um which is sort of perfect you know as you get a little older and um in you're in the midst of a global pandemic it's nice to have a baby because it's the the perfect at-home activity and you know there's nothing I'd, I'd rather do more than just sit at home with the family now absolutely um when we talked last matthew you, you told us this great story about uh your time uh, working in journalism and and how Maybe that wasn't the uh, the exact career that you were cut out for because it was much more exciting for you to kind of embellish some or, or you know, want to embellish some of these stories. And, and I think you had an editor and said, no, you know, let's 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 stick to the facts um, now that you write the kind of books that you do. And then you look at the headlines and you see that, um, you know, some of your plots that you come up with are are not so far-fetched um that's kind of an odd um kind of full circle moment that that it, it's kind of fun to embellish the news and to, to make it more sexy and then to find out that the fiction you write is is you know in danger of becoming reality too often um that that's that's got to be uh, a it's got to be interesting to read the news knowing the kinds of books that you write it is, and it's obviously the wellspring of a lot of ideas. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, when I started this, it, it felt like politics was much less crazy, and the thrillers were very much amped up, sexed up versions of reality. You know, the yeah. idea that somebody would kind of kill someone in politics was really over the top. But, uh, you know, now it's, I mean, you have you have crazy things. You have, you know riots on capitol hill you have you know foreign meddling in elections you have all, all kinds of crazy stuff you have a, a full-on land war in europe um so it is it's funny now 
as a practical matter, you need to be typically in these books sort of relevant to what's happening, but also you need to future proof the book a little bit because it takes a year to write and a year to come out. So you can't possibly chase. It's like right. driving, piloting an aircraft carrier. So, but that, you know, it sort of helps you be more creative. I've had books like The Night Agent that were almost overtaken by events and then it forces you to give them a little twist and then that future-proof that book and also I think made it a better book. Um, and, you know, in terms of more generally what these stories do, it's wild now that reality has become so far beyond in, in terms of like the outrageousness of events that happen all the time it's beyond what i imagine and in some ways it it outstrips what ha what typically happens in thrillers uh so i found myself returning to this idea and i wrote an essay about this for vox that the books can give us some sense of order and meaning and closure and we really are drawn to them because they can give us a sense of sort of right and wrong and that they're being uh, like logic and justice to the world or at least to the stories so i find that aspect of fiction to be a little bit more salient right now when um when the new book first came out i, I saw that jack carr had had blurbed uh, it and uh, love Jack Carr. He's he's a great friend. Um, but he said intricately plotted with extraordinary characters and riveting action. And uh, when you mentioned earlier about how you like to sort of plan out the beginning of the book, when I see someone say that that a book is intricately plotted, when when they say that about someone else's book, um, I think what they're what they're meaning is the story is very tight and and there's a lot of uh, seemingly well-planned misdirection and uh you know the, things are happening that you can't see coming um with the with the the type of planning that you do um do, do you know when, when you first down, sit down to start your draft after you've kind of done your outlining and all that do, do are you the kind of writer that likes to work out all of the problems ahead of time so that the drafting just comes uh, it is more like putting skin on the bones there, or are there opportunities where the writing still surprises you, even though you uh, have have done your pre-planning work, um, you know, you've been so dedicated to that up front. Is there room where, where the story can still be a little wild to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about kind of striking balance. I, I tend to outline and in terms of misdirection and plotting i like to have a sense of that so you can you know lay the pieces in um and you know i should say jack carr is just like a tremendous great guy and i was fortunate enough to meet him a little bit while he was kind of breaking in and um yeah and then it's just nobody has ever worked so hard to deserve success like he has so that's sure. been a thrill to watch um and as far as plotting, yeah, I like to figure out the sort of main signposts so I can do the misdirection. And if it's something that will touch on in important structural ways, other parts of the book, I'd like to have that figured out in advance. 
but it's not something like them when I sit to write the first draft. I'm simply sort of like, you know, painting and sanding, you know, like just finishing up stuff. It's it's really the scene to scene stuff. I know, for instance, that, you know, the hero will get out here, will escape here, or, um, you know, there'll be a big surprise and this person betrays this person. And then when I sit down to write that scene, I have no idea how that will happen. So that's how I like to do things, you know, where I'm confident that the whole plot will work and that makes me a little bit more relaxed enough to really um spend my creativity on the particulars of that scene it's kind of tactics and strategy or something like that um and you know what i've been doing more i used to outline and i used to outline by trying to sort of like this is hard to convey but i would like plant big flags where the story needs to go Sure. You know, based on twists and that sort of thing. And now I do an outline where I'm sort of at um, a kind of ground eye view with the main character. And I'm outlining, I'm just writing down what will happen in these scenes. But I'm really just thinking, okay, then what happens? Okay, then what happens? Instead of saying like, oh, I need this person to make sure that they, you know, know that the FBI is going to betray them. 60 pages from here so i found that sort of um going by the seat of your pants at an outline phase where you're just writing down what happens in each scene in like what most people would do like with an index card i found that's the best way to be able to get your story down without writing the whole darn thing and yeah. also keep some of the spontaneity and a lot spontaneity and logic because if you're a big outliner and you have software like Dabble or Scrivener, you know, it's really easy to lay out all these things. And then when you're actually going through those scenes and writing it from the point of view of the character, sometimes it doesn't make sense or it's forced. So that's something I've been doing more and more, getting away from all these sort of screenplay beats and milestones and doing things more from the uh, sort of character ground level view. Um. Are you the kind of writer that needs to have uh, a a a particular space to write that, you know, some people have their writing space and, and they they hold that almost sacred. Uh, other people can grab a laptop and sit in the middle of a crowded, noisy room and just fall into the story there. They, they're able to just block everything out. Um, do you fall into one of those two extremes or are you somewhere in the middle? Oh, it's definitely the former. You know, I need um, a pretty quiet place. And my joke about this, you know, The Shining, where he's uh, Jack Nicholson's character is losing his mind. <laughs> yes. And his you know, very kind wife, like, offers to bring him a sandwich. And he goes completely <laughs> insane. Yes. Um, and... Most people watch that movie and they're terrified because obviously this is a violent psychopath. And then I watch the movie. I'm like, you know, I mean, maybe he had a groove going. Not to justify anything he did. Right. Um, so, I, yeah, I do Cut like him some slack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had all work and no play. That's a great line. He was at a groove going. Um, so I do like um, I have I really I don't do music. I like total silence and um I, in terms of like writing tips, people maybe can use, you know, you can, you can either force the world to be silent or take measures 
related to your ears that will give you silence and let you concentrate. (laughs) And this is sort of a new aspect because, you know, my wife and I worked from home in like this one bedroom apartment when I was first started writing. So I've, you know, earplugs are amazing. Noise canceling headphones are amazing. Both together are almost impermeable. And my little trick, if I'm like trying to write on an airplane or they're doing construction next door, which they are, is um, earplugs, <laughs> noise canceling headphones over them. And then if you play white noise through the noise canceling headphones, somebody could be doing target practice next to your head and you wouldn't hear. Um, so I can sort of work in a house full of the full carnival of family life and do that <laughs> and have a pretty isolated space. Yeah. I'm just jotting down earplugs, white noise, target practice. Got it. But but like a tornado could pull your house away. So, (laughs) you know, you need to take some safety precautions first. Look up every couple of minutes to make sure the roof is still intact and and Mm. go for it. Uh, you've had some pretty exciting news uh, in the last month or two about the night agent uh, coming to to the screen. Um, what's going on with the night agent? They are about to finish filming it this week. And Whoa. I went up to the set last week, uh, sort of like in the midst of book tour to check everything out. And it was one of the coolest things I've ever done. Um, so that's yeah i'm just kind of thrilled and grateful and all about that because uh it's really it's really hard to get a television show made and i now understand why it's just an extraordinary outlay of resources and work and a lot of moving parts time you i now have some idea but it is i mean it's like it's it's a a decamillion kind of thing to get that's why it's so hard to get something made and then you see what that looks like. I mean, I, I pulled up to the set and there were there were hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I mean, it, it gave me butterflies when I saw the night agent and then saw this like, uh, you know, battalion sized operation. Uh, that but it so makes cool. you really appreciate the the risk people are taking and the the amount of work that goes into into television and the talent of the people who do it i i mean i watched him do a five minute scene and it took 14 hours oh my goodness <laughs> it was really oh really something so to to kind of call back to to some of that writing advice that you talked about when we first started talking um where where someone gave you the advice to to kind of step back and to visualize the the scene that you're writing and to to get a different perspective on it so that you could see it then sit down and describe what it is that you that you saw to then go to a set to literally visualize uh how someone has taken your words and now interpreted them to 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 the way they see it that that has to be a surreal um experience it's really cool um you know the first moment where I got that, the, you know, those butterflies was seeing the script. The, the showrunner, Sean Ryan, is just an incredibly great, nice guy. And, you know, most people sort of joke that, like, Hollywood keeps you at arm le- arm's length. Or, you know, they refer you to the movie Barton Fink to see how authors will be treated. But actually, I've been, like, treated incredibly well. Um, and everyone's been super nice to me. And so he sent me the pilot. And, you know, I wrote, I, I had scenes from the book. And then I looked at the pilot. And some of them were basically just 
you know, moved over. And then the cool thing about the show is that Sean Ryan had his own story that he's sort of combines, which hopefully will sustain this this world of the series for, you know, God willing, many years. Um, But yeah, seeing something you wrote just turned straight into a TV scene is such a thrill because I don't know. Um, Well, I had this feeling about books where they were almost this magical thing that came down from on high. And I remember the first time I got a signed book and I was like, it was like a sacred thing to me. Um, And, and, you know, now I write books, so it's, it's more, it's been disenchanted a little bit, or at least I'm used to it. And then, you know, I have that feeling about TV and film. And so to go and to just see your stuff turned into that is really, really fascinating. Um, And then to see, these characters you wrote just walking around and talking to each other and, you know, pulling guns on people. It's, <laughs> it's so cool. It's absolutely cool. And, you know, it was near the end of the shoot and they work really long hours and, you know, some days went late and I was just, I mean, the whole time I was just like sitting there with my mind blown by the whole, the whole enterprise. That is so awesome. Um, your new book, red warning, um, who is CIA CIA officer Sam Hudson? He is a deep cover officer, uh, technically known as a non-official cover officer, who has been chasing uh, a Russian deep cover officer, a sleeper um, named Constantine, uh, for years. And you know, some folks even think that Constantine is sort of a legend, kind of like a Kaiser Soze type figure, and. He's on the trail of him in Geneva when something goes wrong. He gets burned and he comes back to D.C. to lick his wounds a little bit. He's on the outs with the um, sort of senior intelligence executives. And then it turns out that the threat from abroad has followed him home. And there's some scenes of sort of iconic buildings around D.C. where he and Constantine get themselves into what I hope is, you know, a classic spy cat and mouse story. It, is it getting uh, to be more difficult to tell these classic spy cat and mouse stories um, the way technology is advancing now? Or um, does the advancing technology make it easier to tell this story? Do you have more tools uh, in your toolbox, so to speak? Um, does the 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 advancement of technology does that factor in to this type of narrative? Oh, it certainly does. And I mean, as a a matter of reality, spies have well, intelligence officers have had to completely change everything because there's so much biometric stuff, and people have such an online footprint that you can't make up a person and you can't pretend to be a dead person. Um, and so those are no longer options. And that used to be sort of the playbook. And also just, I mean, ubiquitous surveillance means that, you know, like you can't even do a dead drop. Um, so, you know, in reality, the spying has completely changed. And I think what they do more now is they take somebody who's, um, who's a real person and they'll use them for a one-off in a sort of denied area because then they'll have a normal 
background in social media. They won't stand out. Um, and then you can only use someone once. So that's as I understand it. And, you know, what I like to do with the fiction is to really understand what's happening in reality. And then when you sit down to the fiction to do the fiction, you know, to feel free to make it up because there's great nonfiction. And I do like to get across a lot of the authenticity and the real facts of how the work is done. But at the end of the day, people are sitting down for like a spy story. And if being strictly 100% accurate to current CIA procedures um, means that your story is going to be boring, which it might, uh, then, you know, I feel free to bring in elements that'll, you know, give us more action and that kind of thing. And that's something I did sort of early in the career where I was obsessed with authenticity and I was talking to all these folks who do cool secret squirrel jobs in the military and intelligence world. And they were like, well, you know, what we do day in, day out, you know, it, we try to keep it boring so that we're not like <laughs> cornered, you know, you don't send right. one guy to take a house in Afghanistan. Um, and we have air support and quick reaction forces. And if we do a surveillance job on somebody, we have 200 people, you know? Um, and they said, so you write the books and we do the work and we know what that's like and we love the books. So it can be larger than life. So my quest for authenticity led me to feeling licensed to be a little inauthentic. Um, so that's sort of the, how you tackle um, authenticity issue. And the interesting thing for this book, though, is that the Russian bad guys who were Soviet intelligence officers came over before all of that. They came over in the old days. And what's interesting in this book is that the plots were sort of hatched at the height of the Cold War. And they're based on real plots and real testimony from Soviet defectors um, like colonels from uh, one colonel from military intelligence who said that you know the Soviet Union had sort of laid out and prepared the ground for these sabotage plots against the US or DC that could be used in the case of World War three and you know there are spies from the Soviet days who stuck around after the Soviet Union fell. And the cool thing, some of them haven't ever been back. So they're still in that mindset. And I mean, another interesting wrinkle to this is some of them came over and then the Soviet Union fell. And, you know, Vladimir, the Russian sleeper, had been pretending to be Joe with a trucking business in Hyattsville, Maryland. And some of the Soviet sleepers actually just became their identity and became Americans and sort of quietly defected to the U.S. without telling anybody and, and melted into their real life. So there's a lot of neat stuff and that retro aspect to this book um, helped get around some of these new technical difficulties of spying in the age of ubiquitous surveillance. Red Warning uh, is a book that you absolutely must go out and grab today. Um, not if you're looking to have a peaceful, quiet weekend. This is not that book. Um, <laughs> but it, it is a fun book for sure. Um, it's it's one of my favorite thrillers of this year. 
Red Warning is available everywhere now. You can grab it in hardcover or Kindle edition or hold the uh, uh, or audiobook uh, if you prefer to listen that way. Uh, we're going to have links to it in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Matthew, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, MatthewQuirk.com and uh, I think my Facebook thing is Matthew Quirk Author, all one word, and mquirk um, is my Twitter name, but it just MatthewQuirk.com, and then you can find links to everything in there. Excellent. We'll link up all those places to make it easier for folks to find you. Matthew, uh, love what you're doing. Red Warning, uh, a fantastic book, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, thanks for talking. Yeah, it was a, it was a pleasure. <laughs>